0: you. <smart noise> hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout women's lives. So Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time. For a limited time, you can get 15% off on your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CHAT at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code CHAT for 15% off today Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at TherapyNotes.com. Want to trade five days in chilly February to learn and play in Cancun? Then register for Innovations in Psychotherapy 2023 by Leading Edge Seminars and use code LARA to save 10% on any five-day workshop fee when purchased with a room at leadingedgecancun.com. You'll earn CEs in the morning, then have afternoons for fun at an all-inclusive resort, workshops by Frank Anderson, Ariel Schwartz, John Brière and more. Register today for 10% off workshop fees when purchased with a room using code LAURA at leadingedgecancun.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. As we are moving into the winter season, it's the week before the start of winter now and got a lot of information to share with you and want to tell you about this week's episode too. So first I'm going to make some announcements. As the year is winding down, there are several things that I have to tell you about. First of all, if you're a trauma therapist, I want to be sure you know that Trauma Therapist Network registration is now open. Only until December 31st, 2022. We'll reopen in the spring of 2023 at a higher price point. But right now, you can get the lowest pricing. We have three tiers of membership now to make it more accessible to all. And we have group practice options, which is something that people have been asking about ever since I started Trauma Therapist Network. I finally got that in place. And we've opened to Canadian therapists, which is very exciting because I know many of you who are listening are located in Canada. And I hear constantly from people who are searching for therapy that it's very difficult to find a trauma therapist in Canada. But I know y'all are out there because you listen and you let me know that you listen. You send me emails and you say, hey, can Canadian therapists join TTN? And I have been saying, not yet, but now you can. So If you're a Canadian therapist, please join Trauma Therapist Network so those Canadian trauma survivors who are sorely in need of your support and help can find you. Now, I know that so many therapists just don't have openings right now. Many group practices, including mine, have had a very hard time hiring new staff. And as a result, most practices are full. Many have waiting lists, many clients who are seeking therapy are finding that they don't have many good options out there, which I hate. And that's one reason why it's so important to me to help shift this perspective that we therapists out in the world have from a more top-down CBT model to a bottom-up, holistic, trauma-focused perspective. That's the whole reason why I do what I do. And for 20 years, that's what I've been doing telling people about trauma and trying to get people to realize that trauma is real. Healing is possible, not just symptom reduction or relief temporarily, band-aid approach, but true healing is possible and help is available, which is why I made the directory in Trauma Therapist Network. But as so many of you who are therapists know right now, finding new clients may not be a big priority for you. It might be more about trying to sustain your health and well-being while you continue to work in your livelihood helping trauma survivors. And if that's you, please consider joining Trauma Therapist Network because for less than the amount you get paid for one therapy session per month, you receive so much support. Weekly calls focused on self-care, case consultation, learning, workshops on mindset, and creativity and personal growth, as well as trainings in trauma-focused methods. We've had a lot of demos from expert trainers like Jana Glass, who is a brain spotting trainer as well as specialty trainer for brain spotting, and Brad Kammer the director of training and a senior trainer in the NARM Training Institute. Be sure to check the show notes if you're interested in signing up for the NARM training because Brad gave us a 15% coupon. And you can see the coupon code and sign up for the training in the show notes. So if you're a trauma therapist, I want to be sure that you don't miss out on the opportunity to join Trauma Therapist Network before prices go up in 2023. In the month of December, we have, as of today, we have five calls scheduled, three more weekly calls and two community calls. So we have five opportunities to gather together live this month. And in most months, we have four and once per quarter, we have our community calls. So there are many ways to be a part. And another announcement I want to make, which kind of relates to this, is that we will be having our first in-person gathering for. DC area trauma therapists this spring of 2023. So stay tuned for details on that. I believe I'm going to open it up to therapy chat listeners who are therapists outside of just the Trauma Therapist Network members. So details will be coming on that. I'm just formulating this, but we have so many Trauma Therapist Network members who are located in the DC area. And, you know, meeting virtually is wonderful, but seeing each other face to face is beautiful and powerful too. So stay tuned for more details about that. Another thing I wanted to make sure that you don't miss is that, and this is for therapists and non-therapists, I have a few coaching spots open on my calendar for January. You can do one-off coaching with me or you can get a package to do a few at a more reduced price. So if you're interested in that, check out the show notes. You'll see all the details and a link to sign up for one of the three coaching sessions that I have open for January. I'd love to meet you if that's something that you need. And I also want to be sure that you heard that Leading Edge Seminars, our new sponsor, is offering training in Cancun in February. There are several different options. There are six presenters spread over three weeks, so you can choose between one of two presenters per week. They are all wonderful teachers And I'll be there. I can't wait to go to this because it's morning training and afternoon vacationing. So it's in a beautiful luxury, all-inclusive resort in Cancun. And I am definitely looking forward to some sunshine. I hope you will consider going to that as well. All right, that's about it for now. As we go into this week's episode, we're going to talk this week about something that I think, you know, at this time of the year, people are really feeling, which is going into the holidays, we have all these feelings about family and connection. And so many of us have lost or are losing loved ones, When we think about the holidays and the end of the year, you have in the United States the Thanksgiving holiday, which while it is a whitewashed holiday, it is a traditional time for families to gather together around a meal. And then just about a month after that, you have the Christmas holiday, which is another Time when families come together, and we, you know, certainly if you go in any store, the Christmas decorations are impossible to miss. So, there's a lot of hype around Christmas, and there's a lot of hype around the holidays, and the togetherness, and connection, and love, and gift giving. Of course, consumerism is a major driver of that. And it can feel though that there's something missing. That you have this fantasy of how you want your family to be but it doesn't really feel like that when you're together and you're not really sure why you feel that it's a time you're looking forward to but you end up feeling stressed and kind of disappointed for some unknown reason it's like just unease and unsettled and you're not sure why so if that has ever happened to you One thing that might be at play could be that there could be some unhealthy dynamics at play in your family that you kind of just think of as the way things are and the way it is in all families, but they might not really be the healthiest dynamics. Even if they are common, doesn't mean they're healthy. In our culture, we tend to avoid talking about painful, sad, unpleasant things, especially in festive celebratory times like holiday seasons. So, you know, there can be this sort of feeling of that there's a lot that everybody wants to talk about, but isn't being discussed. And then a sense of incongruence between the, the festive, connected, loving family that you're wishing for and the way it actually feels to be sitting with your family. So I asked Sharon Martin to come to Therapy Chat and talk with me about how family dynamics with secrecy and shame can really impact us and what they look like. Maybe you can identify some dynamics in your family that could be improved. So this is not about critiquing or blaming our families. And we can get really uncomfortable when someone says something that threatens our ideal of what family is and what it's supposed to be. We can become very protective of our parents. Well, my family's great. My family loves me. My family's fine. There's nothing wrong with my family. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with your family at all. But what I want you to hear is that if you feel uneasy when you're with your family, this episode could be helpful in illuminating some of the patterns that can cause people to feel like they have to suppress parts of themselves to be accepted within their families. And when that happens, those parts of ourselves that we have to suppress become parts of ourselves that we don't accept. It's like, I'm not accepted if I show up like this, so I have to suppress this part of me And otherwise, I don't belong. And I want to belong here because belonging is a major biological imperative for us as humans. We're social beings, and we are literally wired for connection. So what we're talking about is if you are trying to function as a healthy organism within a system that is not functioning in a healthy manner, it's either the system that's dysfunctional or you that's dysfunctional. And I just want to say it's not you. There are many ways that our family systems in the Western world have been influenced by colonization. And what's acceptable and what's not often includes many aspects of our identity that don't fit into the heteronormative, white, patriarchal construct. So family dynamics are invisible. They're invisible patterns of communication and behavior that the whole family works consciously and unconsciously to enforce. And I hope this conversation will help you be able to identify some of the patterns that might not be working for you within any system that you're part of and realize that it's not you. It's these patterns that are not functioning in a healthy way. So once we recognize what's going on, then we can do something to make it be different. For example, one of the dynamics that Sharon speaks about is people not expressing themselves. That can really do a lot of harm. And we're gonna talk next week with Sharon about how to show up without abandoning yourself during the holidays when maybe your family of origin was lacking some of what you needed, In certain ways, Sharon's going to share with us how to survive and thrive during the holidays, because that's what we all want is to thrive, right? We definitely don't want to just survive. We want to thrive. And when your upbringing was less than ideal, as it was for so many of us, it really gets amplified during the holidays, which is why we're focusing on this over the next few weeks. So whether you're a therapist or not, I hope that you will find some useful information in this episode. I think Sharon does a wonderful job of explaining these sensitive and often painful topics in a way that's very compassionate and straightforward and down to earth. So I hope you'll enjoy listening. And if you're interested in some of the ways that I mentioned that you can work with me in 2023... I hope to hear from you soon. Take care. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I am very happy to be bringing you an interview with someone who has been on Therapy Chat before. My guest is the wonderful Sharon Martin, LCSW. Sharon, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Of course. My pleasure, Laura. I always love talking to you and there's so much overlap in the work that we do, but I use your blog posts and uh, all the different things that you're doing so often with my clients. So I said, hey, let me get her back on here and ask her some stuff that I want to let my clients know about. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So um, let's just start off, if we can, by you telling our audience, for anybody who's not familiar with your work, who you are and a bit about what you do.
1: Sure. Well, I am a psychotherapist and I work in San Jose, California. And so I work in private practice at this point. And the focus of the work that I do in my practice is helping people overcome issues around codependency and perfectionism and people-pleasing and, you know, all those things really overlap in a lot of ways. And often. A lot of the clients that come and work with me are people who experienced growing up in an alcoholic family, sort of the adult child of an alcoholic is kind of the label that we put on that, just to help us kind of, you know, put it into some sense of understanding what some of the common issues are. Um, And so in addition to the clinical work that I do, I do a lot of writing. As you mentioned, I write a, a blog called Happily Imperfect for Psych Central, and write for some other places as well, here and there. But I often write about these same topics. So, like you said, you can find out find out more about what I'm doing, and and a lot of the writing that I do either there or um, on my website.
0: Yeah, and I'll be sure that at the end you get a chance to give a link to where to find all your stuff. Because, like I said, I mean, I use it all the time with my clients, and and I always find everything you write to be so helpful.
1: Mm, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad that it is helpful.
0: Yeah. So what I wanted to talk to you about today is growing up in a family where one parent, at least one parent, is an alcoholic. So there are certain characteristics of families that are headed by a parent who's an alcoholic that are pretty common in what I see in my clients who come in as adults. And I know that what you mentioned, codependency, perfectionism, and people-pleasing behaviors tend to be really common for these adults, but they don't always recognize it as being related to the way their childhoods were. So I was just wondering if you could sort of describe what the family dynamics are like in a family where one of the parents is an alcoholic.
1: Sure. I, I mean, we can kind of get into so, what some of the the common dynamics are. I'll just sort of preface it by saying that, of course, every family is different, and this may or may not be true for the family that that you, the listeners, grew up in. Um, although I think you you may you know find that some of it rings true for you, and maybe some of it does not. Obviously, mm-hmm. every alcoholic family is a little bit different, and you know because alcoholism or addiction is a progressive disease, you know, that it um, it changes over time. And so depending on, you know, I think the stage of the alcoholic is and the age of the child, um, you know, when a parent is in different sort of phases of the drinking, if you will, or if they're in recovery, um, that will certainly have a big impact on how, how the alcoholism affects the child. And then I think there's also, you know, going to be some mitigating factors about, you know, um, if there are other support people or other support systems that are um helping again sort of um, mitigate some of the the challenges that are going on, but just to kind of to start us off, I think one of the primary things that happens as the alcoholism progresses is that really the the whole family system starts to revolve around the alcoholic and the alcoholics' ability to be able to have a constant supply of alcohol and to be able to drink and do drinking-related things, if you will. And so everything sort of becomes about that. And and each individual plays a part in it, really unknowingly, a part in being able to sustain this system. And when we think about, you know, sort of family systems or any kind of system, there's really this this sort of... um, big kind of pressure for it to just keep going the way that it's going to maintain the system in its current functioning, even if it's really dysfunctional. Um, And I think this is the part that can be really hard to understand is, you know, why do we as the family members of the alcoholic, you know, continue to do these things that sort of don't make a lot of sense in some ways that enable the alcoholic to continue the drinking behavior that we all want him or her to stop. Um, So it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense on the surface. But like I said, when you kind of think about that family system, the alcoholic has a lot of power in the family. And so the alcoholic is sort of the one who's kind of making the rules. And sometimes these, these kind of rules are not necessarily written down or even spoken out loud. They're just the things that everybody in the family knows that you're allowed to do this or you're not allowed to do that. And a lot of those family behaviors become centered around how do we cope with the alcoholics drinking or, you know, um, their behavior when they're drinking or recovering. You know, we learn that there are certain things that we can or can't do because, you know, we can't have friends over in, you know, in the late afternoons because by that point, mom has already had too much to drink. You know, it's those kind of things that maybe are never spoken, but we certainly learn that that's a rule in our family that we can't do that. Um, and so, again, we are kind of like we're all focused on how do we navigate this, you know, kind of craziness that's going on in our families without really talking about what's going on. It becomes a big secret. Yeah. You know, that's that's really not talked about in the family. And it's definitely not something that we feel like we can talk about outside of the family. So it becomes a, a big weight, I think, for people to carry you know this big secret this big source of shame that we can't talk about that we can't get help for so i think there's a lot of really kind of suffering in silence that the family does um feeling isolated um and like i said ashamed of what's going on and there's there's a lot of pressure you know for the family to look like they have it all together to look like you know a quote unquote normal family and not not let other people know that there's a lot of really dysfunctional things going on sort of behind the closed doors of of the the house, essentially.
0: Yes. So I've noticed that there's a lot of overlap between families where the one of the parents is an alcoholic and families where, you know, the dynamics are dysfunctional in general, even if neither parent is abusing substances it's like you know, it's that same dynamic of, you know, we don't let people know what goes on inside of our home. You know, whether it's there's abuse happening or the kids, you know, everybody looks perfect on the outside. But if people saw how things really were, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it's that I think that overwhelming feeling of shame and of secrecy and that it's chaotic and it's unpredictable. And, you know, especially, you know, for really young children, it's very scary a lot of times, sometimes because um, it's physically unsafe or emotionally unsafe with a lot of, you know, yelling or verbal abuse. But sometimes, you know, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the alcoholic can can be pretty quiet, if you will. You know, they may be isolating themselves a lot or even not home a lot if they're out drinking. Mm -hmm. But again, there's still this feeling like, Even very small children can sense that there's sort of something wrong in their family, that there's this unspoken tension and stress within the family. And so, you know, we all know that children thrive on predictability. They thrive on routine, on, you know, knowing what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. That gives you a sense of security and of safety, which are, you know, very, you know, fundamental pieces of a secure attachment. You know, and I think just the ability to trust other people and um, form healthy relationships in childhood and in adulthood, and so those are sometimes those pieces that are missing um, again because the family, in one way or another, has got this focus on this problem. Like you said, it could be the alcoholism, or sometimes it's. It could be a parent who's got a serious um, mental illness that's untreated. Um, Sometimes that can have a very similar effect. A parent who's extremely depressed um, or suicidal has has a lot of those same dynamics as well.
0: Yeah. Or if the parent is like an abuser, like if they're like sexually abusing one of the children and, you know, there's that same dynamic around protecting that secret and also Right. Avoiding that person getting upset and not being able to speak about what's really going on, not right. being able to really freely express their feelings about how things are at home in general.
1: Yes, I, I think there ends up being that underlying feeling that if we were to let other people know about what's going on in our family, then, then it would be disrupted, even though we know that there's problems and maybe we even know that it is unsafe and we don't like it you know families you know don't want this disruption of you know the sense like somebody's going to come in and start telling us what to do or of course you know children often are afraid you know their parents are going to split up
0: somehow the children will lose their safety and security
1: yeah they'll have to leave their school um and again i mean this is where there's i think there's these sort of contradictory pieces of it like i was saying that the home life is unpredictable and often chaotic which is hard for children And yet there's still going to be fear of the unknown, which is, I'm still afraid that the change that might happen if somebody finds out about our family problems will create even more problems, or they will create just problems that I don't know how to deal with. Because living in this family, I have figured out some coping skills to be able to navigate this particular type of dysfunction. I can, you know, we sort of learn, we learn to anticipate to some extent you know you kind of get that hypervigilance and that real attunement to what's going on so that you can try to keep yourself safe right that can mm-hmm. sometimes literally literally be you know making a beeline for your bedroom and closing the door as a child so that you can avoid having a confrontation with your father or something like that you know so you so, you, so you've sort of learned how to navigate that and you know there's the concern that you know, if we have a different family dynamic, a different setup, you know, like I said, the parents get divorced or we have to go live with our grandparents or, you know, something like then I won't know how to deal with that situation, which, you know, chances are, you know, we could figure out how to deal with that situation, but we all are afraid of the unknown. I think that's just, you know, part of human nature is that we, you know, we worry about what we can't, you know, we can't see and we can't touch and we don't know what it's going to be. And so that creates that anxiety um, that bubbles up in us when we think about, you know, asking for help or getting some support um, from other people about about our family situation.
0: Yeah, and I would say too that oftentimes the children feel worried about the parent who is abusing alcohol or substances, and it's kind of like they see them yeah. in the way they can understand as being sick. You know, they're afraid that if anybody finds out just how not okay they are that the child will lose them somehow.
1: Yes. And I think going along with that, you know, there's also this feeling of if, you know, if my parents get a divorce or if I'm not around, then who is going to take care of mom? Let's just say, well, you know, mom's the alcoholic in this situation. It's like, if that has been your job is to make sure that, you know, mom gets into bed every night and the cigarettes put out. So, you know, that's not a danger, You know, like those have been your jobs in the family, then there's that worry of, oh, you know, I don't I don't know what's going to happen to mom if I'm not around or, you know, I don't want mom to get into trouble. I don't want mom to end up in jail. So, again, there's a lot of that worry and a lot of that caretaking that that we take on as kids because we love our parents. You know, no matter I think, you know, that's the abuse or the dysfunction you know, we're attached to them and we care about them. They're the only parents we know. Yeah, of course, of course. And we feel protective um, and want to make sure that they are safe. And so, yeah, that's one of those pieces that oftentimes, you know, the roles almost get reversed in alcoholic families where, you know, the children are taking care of the parents instead of the parents taking care of the children. Because, you know, the parent is just, you know, not able to fulfill those kinds of responsibilities, whether it's, you know, basic things like, you know, cooking meals or paying bills, or certainly the emotional caretaking is often lacking that, you know, you can imagine the alcoholics very preoccupied um, and very shut down emotionally that, you know, they really don't have the ability to certainly be in touch with their own emotions or not a, not, a wide range of them. Certainly Um, they're often a couple of emotions, like a lot of times anger, that is all you see, but they can't nurture, you know, you as a child emotionally, and really encourage you to have much of an emotional range um, or allow you to express a variety of different emotions. The, you know, like I said, the whole family really gets shut down emotionally because it's so painful you know, we really, you know, in alcoholic families, people don't really know how to deal with the painful feelings. And so the way they deal with them is, you know, the alcoholic is drinking and sort of numbing out all the emotions that way, you know, and for the other families, there's a lot of just sort of repressing, you know, pushing down of the feelings. Um, And sometimes, you know, finding other ways to kind of numb out with other substances or Food is a big one, of course, um, or even just, you know, TV, electronics, just kind of zoning out is, you know, sometimes the way people cope. Yes. And
0: I would say from my experience, I want to bring up two dynamics that I've heard a lot. One is where the child had to, the mom would send the child to the bar or the child would even go with. Uh-huh the alcoholic to the bar yep. as a way to sort of make sure the person stayed out of trouble or the child is going there to fetch them for the mm-hmm. mom, yep. which really puts a child in a terrible position.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've had had clients tell me very similar things where they were taken to the bar by their alcoholic parent at a very young age.
0: And sometimes they're put in unsafe situations by the yep. alcoholic parent.
1: Absolutely. Or they were to wait in the car while the alcoholic went in to drink in the bar. Or like you said, the other one is, you know, go find your mother, go find your father who's out drinking somewhere and bring them home safely. You know, that became the child's job, which of course, you know, is completely inappropriate um, for a child to have that kind of responsibility. But yeah, sometimes that does happen.
0: Exactly. So the child becomes even to the alcoholic parent the child is in more of a parentified role of you have to come home now you know Uh and they have to like they're like the stand-in for the other parent but it also you know it doesn't like it gives no awareness to what the child maybe the child had an argument with a friend at school that day who are they going to talk about that with when they have now this responsibility to go and get their dad or mom from the bar and bring them home. And then they know that when they get home, there's going to be conflict with the other parent, you know?
1: Yeah, there's, you know, most of the time, there isn't anybody in the family that they can talk to honestly about their problems and their feelings. Then that goes for, you know, the problems within the family. And like you said, like the problems that they're having, you know, with their peers or in other areas of their life, it's both, it's just, it's not safe it's either met with anger and blame. It's kind of turned around on them or it's ignored. I think, I think that's a lot of it is that, you know, everybody in the family is preoccupied with other things, again, sort of maintaining this dysfunctional family system and that nobody has the emotional wherewithal, you know, to sit down with Johnny and ask him how he's feeling and how his day was. Because again, this starts, I mean, it's, If we were to do that, if we had that capability in this family, it would start bringing up all of the quote-unquote problems, all of the painful feelings that, you know, this family is working on trying to deny (laughs) everything that's going on. We're trying to maintain this system, which means we have to say there is no problem, there is no alcoholism, that alcoholism, if we do acknowledge it, is not causing these kinds of problems, that's not what's going on here, and so, if you're starting to bring up, you know, these kinds of challenging feelings, that sort of puts the whole system in jeopardy. The system is maintained by everybody keeping their mouth shut, they're keeping their feelings bottled up, and you know, everyone just focusing on, okay, let's just, you know, do our best to try to, you know, tiptoe, tip-toe around the alcoholic and you know the problems that are associated with that. You know, it's very much that sense of like, I'm just walking on eggshells here. You know, I'm just trying to maintain the status quo, not rock the boat, not cause any problems, not introduce anything new to the family.
0: Yes. So, and that's, that brings to mind the other common dynamic I've heard from clients where maybe the parent who was abusing alcohol is a single parent and Uh the child would come home And just kind of, you know, come home from school and be like very hypervigilant about, okay, what am I Uh about to walk into? Am I going to find happy dad? Am I going to find drunk dad? Am I going to find dad crashed his car during the day? Am I going to find hungover dad, you know?
1: Yeah, that's that unpredictability that, you know, feeling of being unsafe because I don't know what to expect when I come home. I don't know who I'm going to get, essentially. And I think, you know, like you said, it's probably mo- more pronounced in single parent families. But I think kids, you know, when their parents are together, still experience that that feeling of dread and anxiety about not knowing. And like you said, there's, you know, there's that hypervigilance. Again, that's just one piece of how, like, the whole family is focused in on what's going on with the alcoholic as a way of like self-protecting, I have to I have to really know what his mood is so that I can predict if he's going to do X or Y here so that I know how to deal with it.
0: Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience. And one thing that has made it so much easier is therapy notes. Therapy notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, TherapyNotes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found TherapyNotes very easy to learn. It's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a TherapyNotes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Thank you to Leading Edge Seminars for sponsoring this week's episode. If you're ready to get away this winter, register now for Innovations in Psychotherapy Cancun 2023 and use promo code Laura for 10% off any five-day workshop fee when you purchase with a room at leadingedgecancun.com. At this unique learning and vacation experience, you'll gain new skills and tools and earn CEs in the morning, then have afternoons at leisure in an all-inclusive luxury resort. Imagine this, morning coffee on your private balcony, breakfast overlooking the ocean, training until lunch with one of today's leading clinicians like Frank Anderson, Ariel Schwartz, John Briere, and more, then fun all afternoon in a tropical paradise. Sounds good, right? Learn more at leadingedgecancun.com and register today for 10% off your workshop fee when you purchase with a room using promo code Laura. I'll see you there. Right. And that goes back to what you said about those coping skills. And I know people sometimes talk about coping skills as something that you learn in therapy to help you through. But I think you're talking about what we would really call, oftentimes we would call maladaptive coping skills.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I kind of use the word unhealthy, but essentially the same thing. But yeah, like we all develop coping skills to get through life. I think, you know, it's not, we don't, I guess, you know, just for the simplicity of our conversation, you know, we can kind of talk about them as sort of healthier or less healthy, but of course, there's like all this area in between. They're not, they don't nicely fall into categories like that necessarily, but um, some definitely work better for us and some ultimately cause us more problems. You know, and the way I, I really think about this is that, you know, living in the the alcoholic family, it's very stressful. It's very challenging. Um, And like we've been talking about, you know, kids from a very young age, they learn how to deal with that. They learn how to navigate that system in order to, you know, keep themselves safe emotionally and physically the best that they are able to. But we don't, when we're little like that, we don't have a lot to work with. And we do not have anyone who is modeling, you know, sort of the healthy coping skills. So we just do the best that we can. And then this is, you know, kind of where we end up in in adulthood, you know, sort of struggling with certain aspects of our relationships or just aspects of our life because we are continuing to use those sort of unhealthy coping skills that we learned through no fault of our own. Mm -hmm. They were the best that we could do when we were children um, and with the resources that we had but it's often in adulthood or maybe, you know, in adolescence where you start to realize like, this isn't really working that well for me. You know, this being, you know, super responsible and taking care of, you know, my parents, you know, when I was 10, you know, that was like a pretty good coping strategy for me in that family. But, you know, here I am when I'm 30 and, you know, I'm burnt out at work and I'm, you know, resentful because I keep, you know, giving and giving and doing things for my partner and my friends, and I don't get anything in return, then you start to go, well, you know, hey, maybe this isn't working out so well for me anymore. I really need to make some changes. I need to learn how to set some boundaries and I need to learn how to take better care of myself, you know, so that I will feel better and I will be happier and I will be healthier. And that's where you know there's there's sort of like there's there's roots that go back, you know, to our childhood in some of the things that are that are causing us, you know, challenges in our adult life. Um and maybe the, the 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 connection is not always obvious, like you were saying at the beginning of our conversations, but but often that's that's what's happened is that you know they are really things that um worked well for us at one point, but now we realize we have more options, you know, that to me, that's one of the big things is, you know, like once you get to be an adult and you leave home, it's not like all of this just magically goes away. You know, I think that's often the fantasy is I'm going to leave home and I'm going to leave all this dysfunction behind and I'll start fresh and I'll be different. But, you know, like we obviously can change. But well, you know, to some extent, like this mold has been set and we have to work hard to make the changes that we want, you know, as adults. But yes, I mean, it comes with us <laughs> into adulthood. Yes. Um, and we, you know, it takes us a long time to kind of unwind some of it and and figure out what else we can do. But like I was saying, I mean, one of the great things is that you recognize now. I have so many more choices. There are so many different ways that I can manage things. I have more resources. I have more support people, hopefully. You know, when you're a child, you're you're limited. I mean, there's, you know, only so much that you can do. You obviously don't have independence, you know, to, to um exercise a lot of the options that you have when you're older.
0: Yes, very little control and you have to do the best with what you have. But when you become an adult and you start to examine, hmm, now why do I do this? And is it working for me? that's your opportunity to say, how do I want to do things differently? What are the, you know, what are the needs that I have that really weren't met when I was younger and how can I get them met now in a way that's healthy for me and healthy for my relationships?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and something even just as straightforward as, you know, deciding what relationships you want to continue to have, you know, when you're a child, you get the family that you get, basically, um, you don't get to choose, you know, whether you want to continue to have a relationship with your parents when you're living under their roof, mm-hmm. you know, but you get to be an adult and you now realize that, wow, I can choose to no longer be friends with this person who continues to, you know, speak abusively towards me. That's an option that I have. And that's those were not options that you had as 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 a child. And it's you know sometimes it can just be very empowering to realize that that there are all those options for you now. I think sometimes we don't even see them because it's almost like the blinders have been on for so long that you just feel like oh I just got to go along with you know what everybody wants me to do and the way things have always been. Um, but really, there's you know there's a whole whole lot out there, and we don't have to do what we've always done or, you know, be the person that our parents or other people, you know, kind of pushed us into being.
0: Right. You know, and I think one of those things being hyper responsible, like you mentioned, is something that oftentimes people just keep on doing. They go, I just work really hard and, you know, work, 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 work. And oftentimes that can be a way to sort of not feel the feelings that Uh are, still there from from that childhood. And, yeah, you know, it can really kind of interfering with being able to see your options. But the reality is, if you look, you know, kind of look within, you don't have to do things the way that you've always done them, just because that's what you learned when you were a kid.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that that reminds me of, Laura, is that You know, I think sometimes, you know, folks, you know, when we start talking about making changes, there's almost this sense or this fear like that we're suggesting that you do a complete 180 and like, you know, you do the opposite of what you've been doing. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to something like being very hardworking, being very responsible, taking care of other people, you know, these are definitely things that are socially acceptable, they are encouraged in our society to a certain extent, and they definitely have their pluses. So mm-hmm. it's not like we want to just completely stop being a hardworking, um, responsible person. Oftentimes it's just like, can we dial it back a little bit? You know, Can we do a little bit less of that? Can we learn to balance it out a little bit more with some rest and some fun? Right. You know, so, so that, um, yeah, it kind of works better for you that you're, you know, you're getting the advantages, but not the disadvantages of doing things to the extreme, you know, and that's, that's definitely one of, one of those outcomes of, of growing up in an alcoholic family is that things often, you know, we sort of see things as black and white, you know, it's like, it's right, or it's wrong, or it's good, or it's bad for us. And oftentimes there's, there's a lot of the shades of gray. There's things that we can do a little bit of and that can be, and that can work well. We don't have to do it, you know, to excess or extreme with things. We can, you know, have a little bit more self-compassion, you know, for ourselves and we can set more realistic expectations for ourselves rather than just being so hard on ourselves all the time, you know, almost to that perfectionistic um, standpoint sometimes. You know, that, that, again, is sort of that, that outgrowth of, of you know, I think the shame and, you know, just being so shut down and needing, you know, the approval from somebody or something outside of yourself to validate that you're worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, sort of, you know, just, just thinking about small changes, I think, is is often much more doable for people. And it's less scary, obviously, than saying, you know. Let's, you know, let's overhaul, you know, all these coping skills that you had. Oftentimes it's just some small changes, some small adjustments can make a big difference for people.
0: That's very true. Very true. So one thing I wanted to be sure to touch on is if you could tell us kind of what are the, the common roles that people tend to have in a family where one of the parents is an alcoholic?
1: Sure. Um, I can go over that briefly for you. So so these family roles um, for an alcoholic family were developed um, by Sharon Wegshader-Cruz, and I probably butchered her name, so sorry about that. But, um, and she did a lot of work um, with alcoholic families, and she came up with these five um, specific family roles that um, she just saw over and over again working with alcoholic families, and it really is pretty remarkable. I think when you when you hear a little bit about them, my experience is that it really resonate with people. And like I said, it's, it's, it's almost just sort of shocking to hear them go, oh, yeah, that was, that was me. That was my role or that was my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of how pervasive they really are for people. So the first role is, is called the enabler. And this is in most families, it's usually the spouse if there is one. And maybe I should just back up for a second is um, these roles are sort of semi-fixed within families. Um, people can switch roles and you can't have more than one role at a time. So it does get a little bit confusing, but I'm just gonna tell you sort of the, mo- the most um, common formulation of how this looks. So so usually the enabler is um, the spouse and the enabler is the primary person who is trying to maintain um, the status quo and is trying to um, you know, sort of unconsciously help the alcoholic continue drinking but not have the negative consequences disrupt the family system. Um, And then the next one is the hero. And this tends to be most often the oldest child in the family. And the hero, you know, I like to think of the hero almost as the perfect child or the very responsible child. That's how some people will um, think about the hero. I mean, this is the person who is supposed to really sort of save the family, if you will, is, you know, so good and so perfect all the time, you know, this would be often that parentified child who takes over the adult responsibilities and just makes sure everything gets done in the family and is sort of, you know, supposed to bring this positive attention to the family. And then after that, we've got the scapegoat. And this child is really sort of the opposite of of the hero. This is, this is the child that receives most of the blame There's the child who was identified as the problem. So this might be a child who was acting out and getting into trouble. So instead of trying to get attention from positive achievements, like the hero, the scapegoat is trying to get achievement, or sorry, is trying to get attention, negative attention, essentially. And then the next two roles are the lost child and the mascot. And so these are often the youngest child. And sometimes, you know, if there's a third child here, they may have both of these roles. The lost child is kind of, will kind of go off into his own world. He will often isolate himself and, you know, kind of be distant. It might be the child who will go in, you know, sit in front of video games and kind of entrench himself in TV, video games, books, sort of a fantasy world as sort of an escape. And then the mascot is really sort of like a class clown. This is the child who tries to diffuse the situation with humor and jokes and goofing around and trying to get people to laugh. So, so those are the, you know, those five family roles. And like I said, you know, people can move around within the roles, you know, for example, if like the child who has been the hero child, you know, does something that um, causes them to sort of fall from grace here. Sometimes they will become the scapegoat and the scapegoat will become the hero, so you up know, with situations like that. You know, and obviously, it, it does vary depending on how many children there are in a family. Obviously, there's not always this many children to <laughs> fulfill all of the True. roles.
0: True.
1: Um, and so, you know, what what we have found from the research tends to be that most likely, like I said, the role tends to be most um, strongly associated with the, the birth order of the children. Although certainly, you know, the, the child's sort of innate. Temperament or personality traits may impact, you know, or gender of children too. Certainly, in some families, impacts which role they take. So it's not, you know, it's not um, 100% like this all of the time. But it is, it is pretty interesting to to think about how everybody plays a part in that system. And like I said, like the enabler is the one who is primarily trying to maintain this system. But everybody's role. Really does play its part in trying to um, keep the status quo going in this family, as dysfunctional as it may be. That is what the whole family system is working on doing.
0: Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And that's really helpful. And I mean, I think it is uncanny when you talk to people, and I, I personally believe that those roles and dynamics play out the same whether it's an alcoholic family or just a generally. Dysfunctional family, you know, uh-huh. you can you can name the same roles and and see how people do the same behaviors, and it's like how it's almost like there's a playbook. It's like how do I we know. all know what to do? But it's it's pretty fascinating. So that's why I wanted to share it because when I've showed those roles to people who grew up in alcoholic or dysfunctional families, they're always just like you said, like oh oh my gosh, that's me, and that's my sister, and that's my brother, and This, I think this was my mom. And, you know, so it's really, um, I think it just helps organize something that seems so overwhelming when it's actually your own family. And just to look at it on paper and go, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we did. Yeah.
1: And I think maybe there's some element that maybe helps break down some of the stigma and isolation around it too. Just when you realize like no, it was not just your family that had these roles. It was not just your family who, you know, was acting like this, not just your family who had this big secret. There were, you know, unfortunately, there are tons and tons of families who are struggling with very similar issues, and it plays out in very similar ways. But you don't realize that because we're not talking about it. Yeah, and, and to me, the other thing that that's kind of fascinating about it, too, is just, you know, even in healthier families, siblings within within a family can have such different experiences. But I think this is very poignant, too, just to, you know, recognize that, you know, two or three or four siblings in this family can have such a vastly different experience of growing up in the alcoholic family in terms of what was expected of them and how they went about trying to cope with it um and what the you know sort of the outcome has been for them what they continue to struggle with as an adult yeah it's it's interesting just how how different that experience can be for people
0: yeah it's so interesting i often talk to people who will say you know maybe it was just them and a younger sibling and they'll say why do i feel so terrible and so you know wounded by my childhood but i look at my younger sibling and they really don't seem to suffer the same way. And I I always say, well, what did they have that you didn't have? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like you, (laughs) the older sibling who was, you know, they're kind of buffering and helping to soothe and ease things as much as possible for the younger sibling, which is, you know, not always the case. They can't always do that, but it's, it's a pretty common scenario.
1: Yes, yes, they often are the protector. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, I think, part of that hero that often that oldest child is the one who, you know, keeps the little one safe.
0: Yeah, which is, you know, then the older one misses out even more on the normal developmental tasks of childhood and doesn't get to be just a kid.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's often often the feeling that people have is that they They didn't get a chance to be kids, to just play and be carefree and, you know, do normal, you know, childhood activities. It was, you know, they had to grow up really fast.
0: Yeah. So for the last last part of our conversation, I would like to ask a question that was submitted by one of our listeners. I think this is so fun that someone who was listening um, found out because I told them that I was going to be interviewing you (laughs) and they said, Oh, I want to ask her a question. So this, this is the question it's from Elizabeth. And she said, as someone who grew up with an alcoholic father, I personally know the burden that alcohol addiction places on families from a very early age. She said that she did in her therapy, a genogram where she mapped out characteristics of her family relationships and realized that there was transgenerational alcoholism and substance abuse on her father's side of the family, um, especially among the males. And so she wants to know, what can you say, Sharon, about what are the drivers that cause individuals to repeat those behaviors across generations? Because she's wondering why someone who grew up in a family where their parent was an alcoholic would grow up and do the same thing, be an alcoholic.
1: Yes, it's a, a fabulous question, and one that I think on the surface is, you know, a big conundrum. Like, why would you repeat, you know, this mm-hmm. very dysfunctional system? You know how devastating it was for you, and you don't want to do the same to your children. And I and I really do believe that that is that is true for people. Is they don't want to repeat this cycle. You know, so interestingly, I think. We, we should probably just throw in one one piece is that, you know, we know that addiction has a genetic component. So that's part of it is that some people are, are more prone to, you know, becoming addicted to alcohol or drugs or other kinds of substances or things. Um, so that's part of why we see alcoholism or drug addiction, um, you know, going through generation upon generation. But the other part is that these family dynamics get repeated over and over again for a number of reasons? Like one is, you know, this is what was modeled to you, and like we were talking about, is that this is how you learned how to solve problems. This is how you, you know, learned to deal with painful feelings. Um, this is how you learned to relate to other people. This is how you learned how to feel about yourself. Um, those basic ideas about your self worth you know, come from that experience in that alcoholic family. And so if there really isn't a lot of work that's done on recovery and learning new ways of coping, solving problems, different ways of thinking and feeling and, you know, really building some self-worth, some self-esteem, whatever you want to call it, we don't have anything else to work with. Like we know that that's not what we want to repeat, but unless we have, I think really sort of accepted what has happened to us and really done a lot of work on healing and learning some different ways of dealing with with the world we we essentially don't have any new ways of doing it and that's part of what happens in the alcoholic family is it's a very closed system you know the denial is so strong that no new information can penetrate that, right? If you know, if somebody tries to you know bring in some new information or a suggestion or an offer of help or something, it's often met with you know rejection. You know, there's that feeling like we don't even have a problem, so why would we need that you know counseling or that AA group or you know whatever, or there's different you know coping strategy. Yes. So so often that is what is happening is that. You know people just aren't aren't really learning another way of doing things, and I don't know I feel like I keep saying this I mean it's like it's a lot of work um yeah. yeah, you know i think I think the truth is that it's always easier to just repeat what we already know than it is going to be to learn something new, and in this context where the like the talking about learning something new um involves having to uncover all of that buried pain, yes. From you know years and years and years of painful feelings that we have smooshed down you know so far, it's a lot of work to pull them up. and frankly it's very unpleasant. It's mm-hmm. very painful for people to start to feel painful feelings when they're you know they have been trying so so hard to not feel those feelings. So I mean it's definitely not that people want to repeat these patterns. You know, and I think a lot of times people have good intentions, but sometimes they also don't, not everyone has access to help and information. I think, you know, we take it for granted that that everybody can go to counseling or, you know, can get the books or that. I mean, there are a lot of things out there more and more, but there are still, you know, some people who who don't have a lot of access, but, you know, you know, things like just being able to listen to this podcast or, you know, going and checking out some books from the library is at least a starting place. I mean, it's probably not going to, you know, be able to, um, you know, change everything. I mean, for people, but um, you know, the, the 12 step programs are also widely accessible And those are a great resource. I mean, they, you know, they have meetings by phone and by internet, too, if people can't physically get to um, those kinds of self-help programs, too. So I don't know. I think now I'm just um, babbling.
0: (laughs) No, but I (laughs) I, think
1: that i answer some of it for her.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's great. Thank you. And I think what you're you're kind of saying, but didn't say directly. So I'll just say it is that, you know, people don't always have the self-awareness to realize that they're repeating the pattern. Yes. And you know they don't just like they had to not see how things really were in their family of origin they can't really see how things really are now but they it's possible yeah. to but it's just you know they they aren't intentionally repeating it it's unconscious.
1: No yeah I think you know and I think that shame and yes really you know the feeling of helplessness that you know, there are a lot of people who have really almost, you know, just but even by the time they get to early adulthood, have really just sort of given up. Like mm-hmm. they just don't see that it's possible to do anything else. You know, and and the thing is that you know, for most people, drinking and substance use begins early. <laughs> you know, shockingly yes. early. So, you know, when you talk about that self-awareness, I mean, it's hard when you're 13 to have a lot of self-awareness, generally speaking, but
0: mm-hmm. for
1: a lot of times, by the time they're 13, 14, 15, they have already started heavy, you know, drinking or drug use. Like the, you know, it's already started. So, so, so it's challenging.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like the numbing has already begun and it just kind of maintains and shows up in different ways throughout the teens twenties, and, 20s and- often thirties, forties. And then the person goes, Oh man, wow. Like what happened? How did I get here? I need to get help.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, Sharon, thank you so much for coming back to therapy chat to talk about this. I think this was a really helpful and fascinating conversation. And where can people find more of what you're doing? Sure.
1: My website is livewellwithsharonmartin.com. So from there, you can find find
0: everything you need. Wonderful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Sharon, thank you so much. I just really enjoyed this. And I might ask you to come back again and talk a little more. So Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care.
1: Okay. Thanks, Laura. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you to Leading Edge Seminars for sponsoring this week's episode. If you're ready to get away this winter, register now for Innovations in Psychotherapy Cancun 2023 and use promo code Laura for 10% off any five-day workshop fee when you purchase with a room at leadingedgecancun.com. You'll earn CEs in the morning, then have afternoons for fun at an all-inclusive resort. Workshops by Frank Anderson, Ariel Schwartz. John Briere and more. Register today for 10% off workshop fees when purchased with a room using code Laura at leadingedgecancun.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today.